All right, Wrestling With Theology fans, this is Pastor Doug Minton here with you in the confessional corner. This week, we're continuing to work through Apology Article 23 on marriage. And in this article overall, Melanchthon gives six reasons why marriage for priests and marriage in general is good for the church and for the world. Last week, we did one through four. This week, we're just going to focus on five. Next week, we're going to focus on six because those two are the main ones that he wants to bring out on. So this week, we begin in paragraph 26. Fifth, the adversaries do not fend the law because of superstition, for they see that it is not generally obeyed. Yet they spread superstitious opinions while giving an appearance of religion. They claim that they require celibacy because it is purity, as though marriage were impure and a sin, or as though celibacy merited justification more than marriage. To this end, they cite the ceremonies of the Mosaic Law, because under the law at the time of ministering, the priests were separated from their wives. The priest in the New Testament, because he should always pray, should always practice chastity. This silly comparison is presented as a proof that should urge priests to permanent celibacy, although in this very comparison, marriage is allowed. Only during the time of ministry was its use prohibited. It is one thing to pray. It is another to minister. The saints prayed even when they did not have the saints prayed even when they did not exercise the public ministry. Conjugal intercourse did not hinder them from praying. All right, so the fifth thing is marriage is not defended because of superstition. And they try to blanket over it with a good biblical reason, a sound example from the scriptures. But even then, they're inconsistent. Because, yes, they claim celibacy is purity, and it is. Keeping yourself from having sexual relationships outside of marriage is very good. But it's not to be put up against marriage as if marriage were a sin and kind of a plan B for if you couldn't be a real good, God-pleasing man or woman. Because God said in the beginning, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. He designed marriage in the first place because it was not good for us to be alone. He created us to be in relationship with each other. And this is the great mystery of the celibacy of the priest is that, okay, they go back to the Old Testament priest and they were in the time of their ministry in the tabernacle, in the temple, they were to refrain from conjugal visits with their wives. They were supposed to be celibate during that time. So they say, well, this is the thing. The priests now are doing it, are doing ministry daily by praying. Well, saying your prayers and ministering in the congregation are not the same thing. Marriage was allowed for the priest in the Old Testament. Why? So we had another generation of priests to follow after them. Because if the priest weren't allowed to marry, who follows in after them? There's nobody because the priesthood was given to the tribe of Levi. And if the tribe of Levi dies because they're all celibate, 
There's no more priest. And God has given us priest in order to help us to know what his will is, to know and understand his word. And so they bring this out, and Melanchthon's like, do you not even listen to the own words that are coming out of your mouth? Because you say that even in the Old Testament, what you are pulling this from, the priests were married. And he goes on to slap his forehead. He continues on in paragraphs 28 through 32. We will reply to these daydreams in an orderly way. In the first place, the adversary should acknowledge that in believers, marriage is pure because it has been sanctified by God's word. That is to say, it is a matter that is permitted and approved by God's word as scripture testifies abundantly. Christ calls marriage a divine union when he says, What therefore God has joined together, Matthew 19, 6. And Paul says of marriage, of meats, and similar things, it is made holy by the word of God and prayer, 1 Timothy 4, 5. That is, by the word by which conscience has become certain that God approves, and by prayer, that is, by faith, which uses it with thanksgiving as God's gift. Likewise, the unbelieving husband is made holy because of the wife, 1 Corinthians 7, 14. That is, the use of marriage is permitted and holy because of faith in Christ, just as it is permitted to use meat and so on. Likewise, she will be saved through childbearing and so on, 1 Timothy 2.15. If the adversaries could produce such a passage about celibacy, then certainly they would celebrate a wonderful triumph. Paul says that the woman is saved by childbearing. What more honorable thing could be said against the hypocrisy of celibacy than that woman is saved by the conjugal works themselves, by conjugal intercourse, by bearing children and the other duties? But what does Paul mean? Let the reader observe that faith is added and that domestic duties without faith are not praised. If they continue, he says, in faith. For he speaks of the whole class of mothers. Therefore, he requires especially faith through which a woman receives the forgiveness of sins and justification. Then he adds a particular work of the calling, just as in every person a good work of a particular calling should follow faith. This work pleases God because of faith. So the duties of the woman please God because of faith. And the believing woman is saved who devoutly serves her calling in such duties. All right, so we have Paul giving us so many different ways of saying that marriage is good and God-pleasing and has been sanctified by God. Even Jesus says, and if Jesus says it, we ought to take it as it says, what God has joined together. Let no man separate. If God has brought a man and a woman together in marriage, there should be nothing that separates them. Now, some could be said on paragraph 32 and the whole thing of she will be saved through childbearing. It's like, well, what about women who can't bear children? Are they not saved because they can't do the simple task? What about the Celibate women who are just fine without getting married, are they not saved? Has nothing to do with that. Has to deal with her in her vocation as a mother as long as the children continue on in faith. That she passes on the faith that she has to them. But primarily when Paul is talking about this, there is one childbearing that is in mind. That is the childbirth 
of Jesus. The Virgin Mary giving birth to the Savior, that is where the saving childbirth is. Wasn't in mine, it's not in yours. It was in Jesus being born as a human being that you and I have salvation. It is that childbearing that brings about salvation. That is the main thrust behind St. Paul's statement. Melanchthon continues in paragraphs 33 through 35. These references teach that marriage is a lawful thing. Therefore, if purity illustrates that which is allowed and approved before God, marriages are pure because they have been approved by God's word. Paul says about lawful things to the pure, all things are pure, Titus 1.15, to those who believe in Christ and are righteous by faith. Therefore, as virginity is impure in the godless, so in the godly, marriage is pure because of God's word and faith. Again, if purity is properly opposed to lustful desires, it illustrates purity of heart, that is, lustful desires put to death. For the law does not prohibit marriage, but lustful desires, adultery, fornication. Therefore, celibacy is not purity. There may be greater purity of heart in a married man, as in Abraham or Jacob, than in most of these who are even truly chaste. Chastity and sexual purity is not to be put up against marriage, but is to be put up against lustful desires, against adultery, against fornication, against those things that take away the specialness of the gift that God gives us in sex, that gift that he brings to us for the marriage bed. And many good and godly married men even in the time of the Reformation, were probably more pure in heart than the Roman Catholic priest who were required to be chaste. Even if they could truly do it, more purity of heart in the married man than in the single priest. Melanchthon continues on in paragraphs 36 through 38. Finally, if they understand that celibacy is pure in the sense that it merits justification more than marriage does, we most forcefully deny it. We are justified neither because of virginity nor because of marriage, but freely for Christ's sake when we believe that for his sake God is merciful to us. Here perhaps they will cry out that like Jovinian, marriage is made equal to virginity. But because of such racket, we will not reject the truth about the righteousness of faith which we explained before. Yet we do not make virginity and marriage equal. For just as one gift excels another, as prophecy excels power of speech, the science of military affairs excels agriculture, and power of speech excels architecture, so virginity is a more excellent gift than marriage. Just as a public speaker is not more righteous before God because of his ability to speak than an architect because of his skill in architecture, so a virgin does not merit justification by virginity any more than a married person merits it by conjugal duties. Each person should faithfully serve in his own gift and believe that for Christ's sake he receives the forgiveness of sins and through faith is regarded righteous before God. Jovinian tried to make the point that marriage and virginity were two in the same thing, on the same level with each other, both gifts of God. But 
you needed to choose whether you were going to be one of the virgin nuns or you were going to be one of the married women or you were going to be one of the virgin priest or one of the married men. You could not swap between the two. You had to decide. And this is one of the sad things about that heresy is that it made both of them sound like there were two paths to salvation. And as long as you did one or the other right. But that is not the way the Bible speaks. Virginity is a more excellent gift because it is one that is supernaturally given by God to be able to stay in. People who can be virgins and chase their entire life are more equipped, more supernaturally equipped in this life than those who are ruled by the passions and the desire to have a spouse. That's just the way it is. If we could be islands to ourselves and be just fine and go along with life with no problems, that would be wonderful. But 99.9% of us can't do that. We can't do that. We need a place for those desires to be brought out properly, and that is in marriage. All right, paragraph 40. Now let's get into some real nitty-gritty about this whole virginity idea. Neither Christ nor Paul praise virginity because it justifies, but because it is freer and less distracted by domestic occupations and praying, teaching, and serving. For this reason, Paul says, the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, 1 Corinthians 7.32. Virginity, therefore, is praised because of meditation and study. So Christ does not simply praise those who have made themselves eunuchs, but adds, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. That is, they may have freedom to learn or teach the gospel. He does not say that virginity merits the forgiveness of sins or salvation. Virginity is praised by Paul and by Christ because it allows us to focus more on what we can do in the church, what we can do for the sake of the gospel and the kingdom of God. Without distractions of, okay, how does this affect my wife? How does this affect my husband? How does this affect my children? If you are by yourself as a virgin, all you have to worry about is you. And how does this affect you? And if you are doing, considering something for the sake of the kingdom of God, it's going to work out for you very well. As long as it is pleasing to God. All right, we continue on through 41 through 50 as Melanchthon continues on this idea of the Levitical priest being brought up as examples for Christian people today. To the examples of the Levitical priest, we have replied that they do not establish the duty of demanding permanent celibacy from the priest. Furthermore, the Levitical impurities are not to be transferred to us. Then intercourse contrary to the law was an impurity. Now it is not an impurity because Paul says to the pure, all things are pure, Titus 1.15. The gospel frees us from these Levitical impurities. If anyone defends the law of celibacy with the intent to burden consciences by these Levitical commands, we must labor against this, just as the apostles in Acts 15.10 labored against those who required circumcision and tried to force Moses' law upon Christians. 
In the meantime, good people will know how to control the use of marriage, especially when they occupy public offices. These often give good people so much labor that all domestic thoughts are expelled from their minds. Good people know this also, that God, that Paul commands everyone to control his own body in holiness, 1 Thessalonians 4.4. 4. They also know that they must rest sometimes so that there may be freedom for prayer. Paul does not wish this to be permanent, 1 Corinthians 7.5. Such chastity is easy to those who are well occupied, but the great crowd of unemployed priests in the fraternities cannot afford in this sensuality even this Levitical chastity as the facts show. The lines are well known. The boy used to pursuing a lazy life hates those who are busy. Many heretics misunderstand the law of Moses and have treated marriage with contempt, yet they admire celibacy very much. Epiphanius complains that especially by this approval, the Encratites captured the minds of the gullible. They refrained from wine even in the Lord's Supper. They refrained from eating the flesh of all animals in which they excelled the Dominican brethren who live upon fish. They refrained also from marriage, and in this particular gained the chief admiration. They thought that these works and services merited grace more than the use of wine, flesh, and marriage. To them, those things appeared to be profane and unclean and could scarcely please God, even though they were not condemned. In Colossians 2.18, Paul greatly disapproves these angelic forms of worship. For when people believe that they are pure and righteous because of such hypocrisy, they hinder the knowledge of Christ and the knowledge of God's gifts and commandments. God wishes us to use his gifts in a godly way. We might mention examples where certain godly consciences were greatly disturbed because of the lawful use of marriage. This evil was taken from the opinions of monks superstitiously praising celibacy. Yet we do not find fault with self-control or chastity. We have said before that spiritual exercises in putting the flesh to death are necessary. Certainly, we deny that confidence should be placed in certain ceremonies, as though they made one righteous. Epiphanius has said elegantly that these ceremonies should be praised for restraining the body or because of public morals, just as certain rites were set up for instructing the ignorant and not as services that justify. Our adversaries do not require celibacy through superstition. They know that chastity is not ordinarily practiced. The adversaries fake superstitious opinions to fool the ignorant. They should be hated more than the Incratites, who seem to have erred by a show of religion. These Epicureans willingly misuse the appearance of religion. Celibacy is not brought about in the minds of people. It is brought about by a gift from God. No vow can do that. No promise to myself, no striving against anything in this world can make that happen. It must be a gift from God. It cannot be required from anyone, with the exception of those who are not married yet, because the conjugal duties are there not for man and woman, but for husband and wife. And as we talk about the marriage of the priest here, we definitely see that there are many instances throughout history, and Melanchthon could come up with a bunch of them, but he doesn't need to. He just needs to point out that these facts exist and nobody disagrees with them. Because there is the impurity in there, the celibacy is not God-pleasing. Because there is the impurity and not the self-control, 
there's the problem. But celibacy is not to be given a more higher privilege in the Christian church because it merits salvation, because it doesn't. It simply shows how God has put you into your vocations. Celibacy is not a goal. It is a vocation. It is a gift that God gives you. And again, for 99.9% plus of us, we don't have that gift. We desire to be with our spouse. And that is God-pleasing. Nowhere in the Bible does it say to divorce or leave your spouse and run into the monastery or go do this for the kingdom of God. No, God puts us in our places so that we might be examples, not only to the people in the church, but the people in the world as to what is God-pleasing, especially in marriage. All right, that is it for this week as we continue to look at the marriage of the priest and the apology of the Augsburg Confession. We'll finish it up next week with the sixth argument that Melanchthon has. But until then, I encourage you to be here on Thursdays for the Digging Deepers. The moments of meditation are running through again, so I encourage you to be here for those as well. This is a difficult topic in this world that is so hypersexualized and tries to make everything about the marriage relationship casual and not special. But God has brought it about to be the most holy, most basic gift that he gives to his people. And that is what the theology is that we have to wrestle with in this passage. Amen.